Scarlet stood before the court, an attorney in a suit, swore an oath to tell the truth. Welcome back to For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and we've got a wonderful episode for you today with John Gleason. Now, many of you have asked me in the past, why don't you have prosecutors on the show? Why don't you speak to former prosecutors? This is a show examining uh, defense lawyers and their strategies in defense cases. And that's why it's called For the Defense. We've spoken to lots of defense lawyers. Season three, we took a detour and spoke to judges. John Gleason is a former federal prosecutor. He's also a former federal judge. So he's got a lot of interesting perspectives to talk about, but he's currently a criminal defense lawyer and doing wonderful work. Um, One of the big projects he's working on and something we'll talk a lot about today is the Holloway Project. And when Judge Gleason was a judge, he sentenced a defendant named Holloway to 57 years after trial because of mandatory minimums that were in place. And you're going to hear how he convinced the U.S. attorney at the time, Loretta Lynch, to agree to vacate uh, those convictions and resentence him. And now that he's a criminal defense lawyer, Judge Gleason has taken up the cause, started the Holloway Project, and has helped to free 11 other folks and is working on a number of other cases. It's a fascinating and really important project that Judge Gleason is working on. Uh, This is a interview that took place during my white collar law class, just like last week. So you'll hear some questions from the students at the end. Of course, we'll also stray into the prosecution of John Gotti. Uh, Judge Gleason prosecuted Gotti when he was a prosecutor. And Albert Krieger was the defense lawyer, so we'll hear some stories about that. You'll hear us debate about Michael Flynn. You'll hear about him presiding over the Jordan Belfort case, the Wolf of Wall Street case. And interestingly enough, um, Judge Gleason has a book coming out called The Gotti Wars, Taking Down America's Most Notorious Mobster, coming out in early May. So this is a good precursor to that book. You'll hear some great stories Um, coming up in the next hour and about 15 minutes of For the Defense. Thank you. This is one of the great lawyers and judges that we have with us tonight. Um, You've heard from criminal defense lawyers, judges, prosecutors throughout the semester. Judge Gleason has worn all three hats. He's been a prosecutor, a judge, and now he's reached his true calling, that of criminal defense lawyer uh, and fighting for criminal justice reform. No laughing, judge. Um, he's got a book coming out about the John Gotti trial. So, so we're going to talk a little about that. I'm going to put him on the spot. But before we get to the Gotti trial, I want to talk about something that has been really amazing for me to see. And, and I know that you're passionate about the the Holloway Project. So thank you for joining us, Judge. You bet. Okay. Um, and thank you for having me. And nice to not see everybody. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you're out there. I'll turn the camera around uh, when we take some <laughs> questions so you can see everybody. But um, let, let's start with this, with this project. So, you know, in class, we've talked about, you know, the trial penalty, the minimum mandatories, the sentencing guidelines, all the reasons that trials have, have become almost extinct. And I, I think you saw that, of course, when you were a judge. Um, can, can you tell us a little about wh- what you saw and what led to this project? Sure. 
you know, and, you know, we all bring our baggage to the table. My baggage includes 10 years as an AUSA, and I was chief of the criminal division when I was appointed to the bench. And, you know, this, this issue of trial penalty and mandatory sentences simply can't be uh, disaggregated from cooperation and prosecutors' desire to solicit, to enlist defendants onto Team America to help them prove cases and make additional cases. Anyway, look, the, the reality is we entered into, while I was a prosecutor actually, we went from a indeterminate regime to a determinate regime that took away discretion from judges, created an elaborate guidelines regime intended to restrict their discretion. And there, there was no sense in which Congress explicitly intended or even knew it would happen to relatively empower prosecutors in the process. But discretion is kind of like water. It seeks its level. And when you take it away from judges, it's going to go somewhere. And it went to prosecutors. And with any number, there are any number of tools that were at their disposal, mandatory sentencing provisions, excessively harsh guidelines, and there are various reasons why the guidelines became excessively harsh, but a system that was intended to usher certainty, uniformity, transparency into the federal sentencing world, did so to a degree in all respects, but ended up for a lot of reasons being characterized much more by increased severity than anything else. And what that severity empowered prosecutors to do, and they, I certainly did it in the, I left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 94. So I availed myself as an AUSA of these tools. It allowed, pro, allowed prosecutors to be in control of the delta between the sentence a defendant would be subjected to if he or she agreed to plead guilty on the one hand and the sentence they would face if they had the temerity to exercise their right to trial by jury on the other and then they blew trial, got convicted at trial. It's that control that prosecutors have over that, that delta that causes just about all the sensible risk averse folk to plead guilty, including, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to suggest for a moment that the real problem is an innocence problem, but including some innocent people. But I, I think the real problem is we have a world in which, we've chosen a world in which we don't punish people because they're guilty. We punish people because they've been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And only if that's the case. And I think there's a, a serious problem in the system that folks whom the government cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt are essentially, I don't want to say coerced because judges find that they've voluntarily pled guilty, right. but they are induced to plead guilty because of prosecutorial power. 
So, so you know, you, there's a lot to unpack there. Let, let me say this about the innocent folks pleading guilty. Your former colleague, Judge Rakoff, has written a whole sure. article and book about this, and he argues that it's a bigger problem than we suspect. Uh, and even if it's only a small percentage of cases, um, numbers-wise, that, that would be pretty big. Um, but, but, but in any event, let's, I, I think the Holloway case itself is a good example of this. So, so maybe you could tell us about that case and, and what happened when you were a judge. Sure. I'm a brand new judge. Um, on the bench a matter of months and an indicted case gets wheeled out to me, you know, randomly assigned to me. Francois Holloway had a chop shop. Um, he chopped up cars, sold the parts for a living and uh, he needed the raw material for his uh, business. So he and an accomplice stole three, gar- three cars at gunpoint in a 24 hour period. Right. The accomplice had a firearm and uh, ended up cooperating against Holloway. And there's a a fence called carjacking. It's basically armed robbery, basically robbery of a car. Right. And whenever a prosecutor has a situation like that, uh, she can decide to to bring three carjacking counts for which back then the guideline range was roughly, you know, eight to 10 years in there. and then at the prosecutor's choice can choose to to deploy the firearm in the sentencing phase by getting an adjustment within the guideline for possession of a firearm or on the other hand charge a separate count under 18 USC 924C for the possession of the use of a weapon with regard to each robbery and the uh, two very fundamental things about about that. One is the second or success, second and third produce the first the first such charge under the firearm law as a mandatory consecutive at the time five years later seven. The second and third had mandatory consecutive twenty years later increased to twenty five. So. Holloway fate and and that so that's the sentencing regime. The other critical feature of this regime, which I knew at the time, and the sentencing commission later proved with data, was that that prosecutorial choice, do I go with a little bit of an uptick in the guideline range, or do I charge this 924C, which operates as a two by four across the forehead of the defendant? It turned out, you know, DOJ disproportionately took the much harsher route when there was a black man in the defendant seat as opposed to a white man. So it was the most harsh sentencing, mandatory sentencing provision in the federal system, which is saying something. And it was used disproportionately against black men. So go back to Holloway. He chooses to go to trial because he actually had a separate interesting legal issue that went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. What was that? That, you know, his, you'll like this, David. The carjacking statute said, if you use a gun to get to steal a car with the intent to cause serious bodily injury or, right? And Holloway's defense was, I'm a car, I'm a, I'm a car, you know, I'm a, I have a chop shop. I steal cars. If these people said no, 
we were going to walk away. Uh-huh. We weren't going to kill him. We didn't have it. So I ended up concluding if there's conditional intent, if they resist and you're going to shoot them, that's enough. And the accomplice, no surprise, said if they resisted, we were going to shoot them. That conditional intent issue went all the way to the Supreme Court and he lost it. But let's get back to the important part of Holloway. Yep. yep. I had, he went to trial after turning down because he wanted, he wanted to test this legal theory. After turning down a plea offer where he only would have had to plead guilty to one gun, firearm charge and he would have gotten an 11 year sentence with good time. He'd have to serve nine. He went to trial, blue trial. I had to give him 57 years. So he paid with about almost half a century of prison time for the right to go to trial. And that case, I stayed awake, honest to goodness, about that case for almost two decades. His direct appeal fails, his collateral attacks fail. They don't stop writing their sentencing judges. So I heard from Francois Holloway, you know, he's doing 57 years. Prisoners write their sentencing judges. Right. And once we got almost two decades into his sentence, so we're like in 2014, I, I get another letter from him. There's no relief I can give him, but I know the racial disparate use of this. I know how unfair it is. I write this thing, I call it an order. It's not really an order. It was a request of then U.S. Attorney Loretta Lynch to basically have a heart and to agree to vacate his two of his three 924Cs. And I write why she should do it. And to my everlasting shock, she sends a AUSA into my courtroom and says, okay, we'll do it. Well, your, your request to have a heart was granted. And I give back to Francois Holloway, the, literally, the rest of his life. He was going to, he was going to die in prison. So um, that makes me the friend of every guy doing stacked 924 <laughs> C sentences in I the bet. Bureau of Prisons. There's lots of them. They all write me. And uh, fast forward a couple of years, I leave the bench. I, uh, after those two police shootings in, uh, in the summer of 2016, a couple of months after I leave the bench, two police shootings on successive days of black men, one in Baton Rouge, one in Minnesota. The firm says to me, what can we do? What can we do on a concrete basis to uh, address racial inequities in the criminal justice system? I know in my desk, I've got a file, I've got a client base right there. (laughs) And I say, I know what we're gonna do. We're gonna start the Holloway Project. Then I spend two plus years like an idiot, naively looking back on it, going around hat in hand supplicant to US attorneys, asking them to do what Loretta did in the Holloway case, have a heart, and they- They, uh, they, they respond better to judges asking them to have a heart oh, than to defense lawyers asking holy them to have cow. a heart. And, but I'll tell you, David, I was, all these letters I wrote, I would copy them to the sentencing judges and a lot of them would immediately respond 
by writing to the U.S. attorney saying, do what Gleason asks, because I've been lying awake about these sentences myself. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So nothing. Abject failure. Along comes first step. And first step does two things. It amends 924C, and that has good news and bad news. The good news is even that Congress, even that president demonstrates that these are like the worst possible sentences because they say, look, from now on, you can't get those bone crushing 25 year sentences going forward, right? Nobody's gonna get those again. The bad news didn't make it retroactive. And then the second thing they do is they amend the what's what's called the compassionate release statute, but you don't find those words in the statute. They amend the sentence reduction statute to take the BOP out of the way and uh, and allow inmates like my clients to go directly to sentencing judges and seek relief. And I tell you, I had an uh, there was an epiphany that was a result of one of my clients calling me, he calls me and says, look at first step, let's make a compassionate release motion. And I say to him, well, you're not old yet and you're not dying yet. Right. So forget it. Because that was the, the, that was the view of compassionate release that the BOP had imbued in us yep. for decades. Cause that's the only time they ever opened the gate. Right. My client says to me, will you read the book, please? So I pull the book <laughs> down off the shelf and I read that that a judge can reduce a sentence for extraordinary and compelling reasons, period. And I think what could be more extraordinary and compelling than a guy who who does, you know, my typical client, 19 years old, he robs four bodegas. He gets very little money, no one gets hurt, and he's gonna die in prison pursuant to a sentencing statute that that has now been rendered defunct because it was so severe, and it was deployed in a racially discriminatory manner sure. for decades. What could right. be more extraordinary and compelling? So we turned from supplicants asking for mercy into the litigants that we are, and we take those same cases, those same guys about whom the U.S. attorneys are slamming the door in our faces, and we go into court and we seek relief, and we've gotten relief for 30 of them. It's amazing. Average sentence reduction, 34 years. Amazing. More than a thousand years of prison time in the aggregate shaved off their sentence. We're still going. Now, we're, you know, we've been in Oh, we've been around the country and we've got a pipeline. We're bringing in other firms. We've got threshold. There are legal issues that are up for grabs. We've got a cert petition in the, in the Supreme Court. There's still a lot yet to be, uh, to be determined with finality by the commission and by the Supreme Court, but we're killing it. And I can't tell you how satisfying it is to win those cases against U.S. attorneys that were so heartless. It's amazing. And, you know, I know one of those cert petitions is from my circuit, the 11th circuit, where uh, unfortunately they're the outlier circuit on, on, this, uh, on this stuff. It, it's amazing to me um, that, that they don't have the heart that you speak of. Right. right. Um, so, so a couple of questions that jump out at me. One is, you know, not only is the 
decision to use the the 924C used in a in a racist and to me heartless way. But but also there's an interesting decision about whether these should be brought over to federal court in the first place, right? So many of these cases are just state cases, as you say, robbery of a grocery store or or a car robbery. I mean, 98% or more of those cases are just local state cases. And when you look at which cases are the ones that are brought over, at least we've looked at them down here in, in the Southern District of Florida. I mean, it's hard not to think that race is involved. Almost all of the defendants that are brought over from state court are black. Well, there you go. I mean, we could, this kind of falls in squarely in the don't get me started category. There's so <laughs> yeah. many, right? There's so many respects in which race seeps in, you know, from the policing to the charging to go into federal court um, as opposed to the state. One thing I will say is there is a regional disparity uh, when it comes to the, of it, when it comes to everything, but when it comes to the incidence of stacked 924Cs, in part because everything's local, including the arrangements that U.S. attorneys have with local prosecutors. You know, those are all, they vary a lot. You know, when they did the crack reductions, you remember this, David, reduction of crack sentences in 2007 and 2010, like the North Carolina districts were, right. you know, gushing over with cases because of the, the various, you know, we had relatively formal agreements when I was chief of the di criminal division in Brooklyn as to who was, who was brought federally. But, you know, back then, the agent, the firearms, the ATF agents, if they wanted to increase their stats, they'd take a gun case. It used to be in the old, in the old era, I would, as a prosecutor, I'd be able to say to someone, hey, look, if you don't cooperate with me, I'm going to take you down the street to state court where you're going to get hammered. Right. That all got reversed. Right. Right. right? With, the new, with the new regime. Sure. And there's a lot going on, including... Agents, you know, the agencies are the clients of U.S. attorney's offices. And in a big city like New York, where you got two offices that compete with each other, there's a lot going on, but there's no question that race plays a role in those decisions. So what's Holloway doing now, by the way? You know, he, I lost touch with him for a few years and I was a little worried because I have a project, right? And <laughs> yeah. I don't want him to resurface in a bad way. And he called me, it's funny you asked, two weeks ago he called me out of the blue because he's now a security guard and he works for a, one of these security guard companies that staffs big buildings in New York with guards. And he, because of his conviction, he's by law disabled from carrying a firearm, which would allow him to have a higher pay grade. So he called about that, but I had a long, very satisfying, you know, I said to him, you know, we got a project named after you. <laughs> and, and thankfully he converted to Islam in prison. So now he has a different name. So I don't have to worry about like him suing me for like, you know, <laughs> under New York law for making, you know, for using his name. I don't think you have to worry about that, um, yeah. but, but, but you should, instead of the pictures of, of you as a prosecutor on the wall behind you, you should have a picture of him walking out of the prison. That would be the good picture to have. I, I actually, 
have a picture. It's up there okay. of his family walking out of the courthouse when I released him. And, you know, he went downstairs to get processed out. And they're all walking out of the courthouse with their hands in the air. Oh, it's very, it's, very uh, it's cool. That, that's great. You know, what, one of the issues that you raised that I don't think gets enough play is, you know, because so few cases go to trial, very few statutes get tested anymore. These new legal theories don't get tested. So, so you raised one that Holloway raised, uh, you know, he lost, but at least the law got tested. They're a really interesting issue. Um, when cases aren't litigated, when cases, when so many cases plead, the law sort of stagnates. And, and then we're stuck with the one-off cases going up to the Supreme Court and getting reversed. And by the way, we keep seeing the Supreme Court reversing these convictions. This, you know, this is a white-collar class, especially in these white-collar cases. Um, they're reversing again and again, but, but it's hard for those cases to make it to the Supreme Court. So that's another reason why I think trials are so important, because the law needs to be tested and probed, and, and it very rarely is anymore. I, I agree completely. And let me add to that this dimension, David. Even when there's no trial, which is 97% of the cases, there's a lot of law going on at sentencing, mm -hmm. right? And the, the guidelines manual, which started out as 100 pages, is now 600. Yeah. It's a labyrinth and ubiquitous in the federal system. Uh, are these waivers of right to appeal. So prosecutors are able to procure guilty pleas. They, the pleas are contingent on a waiver of a right to appeal. The, the waiver is frequently not bilateral. The government can still appeal. Right. So what happens is a stunting of the substantial sentencing law, right? So mistakes that get made that inure to the detriment of a defendant don't get the light of day in the court of appeals. Whereas because it's not bilateral, mistakes that the government chooses to appeal get fixed. So the sentencing law gets honed in a way that advantages prosecutors because they, they get to fix defendant disadvantaged mistakes. Right. Whereas prosecutor advantage mistakes die in those appeal waivers. So I, I don't know if you remember a, a colleague of yours. He, he passed away, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now. Judge uh, Norman Rutger from Fort Lauderdale down here. He had big handlebar mustache and uh, he carried a gun on the bench, much different than you. And, and uh, he, um, my first case as a public defender, um, it's when those uh, appellate waivers started getting put in the plea agreements. And, and uh, you know, the prosecutor put it in there and said they wouldn't take it out. And, and um, I was told, don't worry, this judge is, doesn't like those. Just go to, go to the hearing and see what he does. So he started twirling his mustache, which was a bad sign for the prosecutor. And he asked him if he worked for the Department of Justice or the Department of Injustice, because if he made a mistake, shouldn't I be allowed to appeal it? And uh, he made the prosecutor cross it out in open court and sign uh, that, which, which uh, I've never seen a judge do that ever again, but that was Judge Rucker. Um, Let me tell you one little, one vignette about that. Last, last year, a judge in Michigan 
refused to accept an appeal waiver because he said, we make mistakes. I don't want someone spending three additional years in prison because we made a mistake. The U.S. attorney and the U.S. attorney offered a defendant a reduction of a mandatory sentence from 20 down to 10 if he would agree to an appeal waiver. The defendant naturally wanted that. The judge said, I'm not accepting it. They filed a petition for a writ of mandamus in the Sixth Circuit. And I argued that man, I was appointed as amicus in the trial court and the appellate court and argued it in front of a panel just two weeks ago. Uh, so they're going to decide whether to order the judge to accept the appeal waiver. Wow, that's that's interesting. And that gets, I think, into our Flynn talk in a little bit about what judges can and should do. And I'll table that for one second. Sure. Um, you know, I, I will bring up Judge Breyer, Charles Breyer, um, Justice Breyer's brother in California, um, was presented with a compassionate release waiver um, in a plea agreement. Um, that, that, you know, the government's now saying we, we can't have Gleason coming back to our court. So we have to have <laughs> the defendants uh, waive the ability to ask for compassionate release later. And Breyer uh, wrote an order saying, no, he wouldn't he wouldn't accept it uh, and, and put in there. Don't you have a heart uh, prosecutor? So so there is uh, there is that theme going through. So so it, it's crazy. You know, every time a judge does something um, to benefit a defendant, they now want to ask defendants to waive those uh, those rights, which is nuts to me. Right. OK, so so. One last question on Holloway, which is uh, some students have asked me how they could get involved after I gave them some of the reading about it. Is there a way for students to get involved in the project if they want to? You know, thank you for your interest in it. It's really, uh, it's impressive and I'm grateful for it. I have to tell you, we'll work on it. You know, I'll tell you, and I, just a little bit of elaboration. Um, it, it takes some doing to learn how to get the pre-sentence report. A lot of our guys went in in the 90s. Right. So working up the cases takes a, a lot of work and getting it right um, takes a lot of training. We are just, today I did a training for lawyers, former uh, prosecutors who are now defense lawyers at Davis Polk and Wardwell because we want to, they've asked us if we can, there's a lot of guys out there, more than two, 2,500 guys got stacked 924C sentences um, since 2000 alone. And a lot of these guys went in before that. My wife helped me create some Holloway Project swag that says free the 2,500 on the back of it. I love anyway, it. long story short, we're I'm figuring waiting for out mine. ways. I'm waiting for mine. I was going to send you one. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, we're trying to figure out ways to both enlist people who want to help because we really need the help and to make sure that the people who want to help are properly equipped to do it well. That those two things are in some, to some degree, a little bit in tension, but we're working on it because we don't want, you know, we want to get as many people who have colorable motions into those courts, especially while the law is favorable now right. in most of the circuits, except this 11th circuit where you guys happen to be. 
you know, we want to get them in and out before things might turn bad on them. Yeah. Um, even the government uh, in, in the 11th Circuit in a lot of districts was not taking the extreme position that the government took in that appeal um, where they lost. But the 11th Circuit has two main rules that it follows, Judge. I don't know if you know these rules. Rule number one in the 11th Circuit is always rule for the government. And rule number two is when in doubt, refer to rule number one. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So we're, we're aligned on the Holloway Project, and, and I couldn't be more in support of what you're doing, and it's wonderful. One area where we disagree, and we've never talked about this, is the Michael Flynn case. Um, we had competing op-eds in the Washington Post. I read yours. I'm sure you didn't read mine, but it came out right after yours. Um, and, and, you know, and then, of course, you got appointed by uh, Judge Sullivan. I, I ended up writing an amicus brief for uh, NACDL, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, saying uh, that this was crazy, that the government and the defense wanted to dismiss a case and the judge was getting in the way. So, so I'm going to let you um, explain um, your crazy position first, and then I'll respond. Well, David, let me, let me say this at the outset. People make mistakes. You can't <laughs> always be right. Yeah. Okay. What? So don't take it too hard. <laughs> okay. Um, um, do you have Rule Forty Eight committed to memory? I wish I did. I, I wish I could say that I did. Because there's I, that little, there's that little clause in it with that requires like approval of the court. Yeah. Remember that? I do. I do. Okay. And it's it's, it's actually analogous to what we were talking about with uh, with the. Uh, the plea agreements. Right. Right. And truth be told, you know, one of the questions I got in the Sixth Circuit two weeks ago was, was this. Um, wait a second. Both the defendant and the government want this district judge to accept this plea bargain. Where, where, where does this judge get off not accepting the plea bargain? And the answer to that was, well, you know, Rule 11 requires the judge's approval. And if the judge has to approve it in every case, those words wouldn't be in Rule 11. And you're reading them out if, if it's an abuse of discretion simply because the judge is rejecting an agreement. Now, Rule 48, which is the issue in, in Michael Flynn, because it's a this is such a great topic. Prosecutors have unreviewable, except in the court of public opinion and in the voting box, voting booth, unreviewable discretion when it comes to not bringing a case. Right. And I come to this, this may be the difference between you and me. I have this whole Article 3 baggage, right? Yeah. Once they choose to bring a case and put that charge on the radar screen of a coordinate branch of government, then it's a different story. And it's a different story because precisely because they implicated another branch of government and precisely because way back in the early part of the last century, judges were bristling at the notion that people were getting their case dismissed because they had friends in high places. 
And back in the 40s, and David knows this um, history, back in the 40s. When I'm like the, you. I wasn't alive in the 40s, Judge. I wasn't, I wasn't around back you know, then. And that, you know, there, there's advantages that come with age. <laughs> yeah. So I was there when the, uh, the, rules, the, the rules committee proposed the first set of federal rules to the Supreme Court and said to the court that, that as had been the case up till then, as a matter of like federal common law, there's no court approved. All you have to do is state the reason for the dismissal of a charge once brought. But because these judges had, had been really concerned about being made a part of an unseemly dismissal of charges because the defendant had friends in high places, the Supreme Court said, why don't you think about putting a court approval requirement in there? And the Rules Committee sent it back to the Supreme Court without one. And the Supreme Court said, all right, we know how to write. They wrote it in there. They put into the prosecutors, into the rule that governs the dismissal of a charge once brought an approval requirement. And that means something. It means, it must mean that there are some cases in which the prosecutor wants to dismiss a charge and the defendant also wants the charge dismissed in which prosecutor in which the, the court can disagree. Now, there had been development of some case law that suggested that that was only the case when the defendant opposed the dismissal because he was being harassed or she was being harassed and wanted re resolution. Yep. Right. A dismissal with prejudice or an acquittal. But that case law didn't accurately reflect a the text of the statute or the reason for the court approval requirement. Hence the dif difference, hence why Marcus got it wrong and Gleason got it right. <laughs> well, the, that, that wasn't just some random case that said it was the, the Supreme Court of the United States that said uh, that that language meant um, not to harass uh, the defendant. Th see, the way I look at judging, and, and I don't have that baggage that you do uh, of being of having that robe, but I see it as judges are there to protect defendants, um, not to protect prosecutors or even really to protect others. It's really to protect the defendant's rights in the Constitution. So, so when a defendant agrees with a prosecutor's decision, um, that, in my view, should be the end of it. Let's take Rule 11, for instance. To me, a judge should only reject a plea agreement when it's to the defendant's detriment. Um, and, and, the, and the judge says, you know, I don't agree that that um, enhancement should apply. So I don't agree to accept that, uh, that plea agreement with that enhancement. This is an adversary system, of course. If, if both sides agree that a case should be dismissed or both sides agree that um, an aggravating role in a sentencing shouldn't happen, um, Who's the judge to come in and say, I'm going to give higher than what the executive branch says. I'm going to give a sentence higher than what the adversary says. Um, to me, there's something wrong with, with a system where a judge is prodding a prosecutor or pushing a prosecutor to a more harsh result for a defendant. Um, 
And, and I'm not sure, by the way, just as a policy matter, that we want judges going into the motives of why a prosecutor is dismissing case. I'm not sure that's really what we want if we want to keep judges as sort of this impar impartial body. I think, by the way, this, this ended up hurting the judiciary and hurting Sullivan's reputation um, instead of helping it just in the I, I want to protect uh, judges as well in our judiciary. And I think this, this, uh, this hurt us quite a bit in terms of making the judicial branch political, which I, which I think is, is a bad thing. Well, as I say, you can't always be right. And let, <laughs> yeah. me, let me make the point differently. And, and what you're missing, David, with respect, is a separate institutional interest on the part of that coordinate branch of government. And let me make the point this way. And you know this from Wheat versus the United States. If 12 defendants go to trial and they all want to have the same lawyer, and the prosecutor says that's okay. And they all make a knowing and voluntary waiver of the right to unconflicted counsel. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know, that for legitimate reasons, a judge could say, look, I'm sorry. I got an interest, this is weak versus the United States. I'm not, a, I don't have to accept this waiver. I'm disqualifying this lawyer. Why? Because there's an a separate interest in the Article Three branch of government not to have the proceedings before it look farcical. We're not doing it. I think your argument conflates two different things. One is whether the authority to vindicate the interests of a third branch of government ought to exist. And on the other hand, whether a particular exercise of that authority is an abuse of discretion. Those are two separate things. But the Article Three branch is not there as a slave to the executive branch. No. I it has its own interests. Sure. And in the Flynn case, that particular Article Three judge thought that it was being asked to be an accomplice to a subordination of the Department of Justice to the interests of the, of the president and thought that it was being required to apply a completely different set of rules to Michael Flynn than he had applied during his entire tenure as an Article III judge. And that wasn't right. The president had it within his power to, to and you look back to the, to the origins of that court of that approval in Rule 48, right? Friends in high places, like uh, bringing the judiciary into this unseemly dismissal because they're buddies, in this case, of the president. That's why that accord approval was there. The president had it within his authority under Article 2 to do what he wanted to do with Michael Flynn. And all Emmett Sullivan says is, use your authority in the right way. Don't, don't bring an independent justice department to its knees to the to the denigration of the of the whole foundation of the department of justice do it the right way pardon them and you know what that's what happened you've got your view about whether the judiciary was its integrity was eroded i got a completely different view
Yeah. I, I do think it is, it is a weird thing. And you, you touched upon this at the beginning that the, the executive branch could have said, um, could have said, we're not going to bring this case at all. And we're not going to bring it because we're friends with Michael Flynn. They could have come out and they could have come out and said that. Absolutely. So it is, it is, it is an odd turn of events that if, I mean, they didn't say that, but if they had come out and said that in the criminal case, that that couldn't be a reason for not continuing with the case. I mean, it is an executive branch decision, right, about whether to file a criminal case or not. Um, an executive branch decision that stays within the executive branch until you walk into that courtroom. It's a different, it's a coordinate branch of government that has its own integrity to protect. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I, I think the, the primary function of, of the judiciary, and maybe this is, is you know, where we disagree on the Rule 11, Rule 48, and, and even on some of these other issues um, about, about the conflict one that you raise is, I don't think a judge could say, I'm not going to let the defense lawyer represent all 12 people because it would look bad for the case. I only think that the judge could do it if if the judge finds that it, it's just too much of a conflict and I'm going to protect the defendants from this conflict. Um, I, I don't I, I don't think the, Ooh, the that's a little paternalistic, David. I thought I thought you're saying that the judge should be protecting the defendant. The defendant wants it. So you think it's OK for judges to be paternalistic and do something the defendant doesn't want her to do, doesn't want the judge to do because the judge is in the best position to decide what's in the best interest of the defendant? That case is trickier. I'll, I'll be the first to admit it, that that case is tougher for me to decide than the Rule 48 or Rule 11 case. Um, and, and there is that recent Supreme Court case that says you do get counsel of choice. Um, so, so that one is, is a little trickier for me, but I would think the only way that that particular case could, could go forward is if a judge really believe that the lawyer was just not going to zealously represent the defendant as a, as a way to protect the defendant. That, that's at odds with the express language in Wheat versus United States. All right. I'll take Rinaldi. You can take Wheat. Um, okay. So, so let's, we'll, we'll di- agree to disagree on that one. I think your, your uh, Washington Post piece got more hits than mine anyway. So, so um, you, you can take that one. And we'll move to, I think, the the really interesting part of tonight's conversation, not that these first two weren't fascinating, but I'm a trial guy. Um, and, and it's amazing to me, you're 30 in your thirties and the Gotti file comes to your desk as a prosecutor. Um, tell us a little about that. That must've been uh, pretty cool. Look, I tried John Gotti twice. You know, when yep. I was, I was in the office a month and I got assigned to the first RICO prosecution of John Gotti. It was the case that was pending when he and others murdered Paul Castellano on the street at Christmas time at six o'clock in front of dozens of people in December of 85. Anyway, that trial to which I was assigned as a, as a young cub prosecutor lasted seven months and uh, they called a defense witness who said that I supplied him with narcotics in exchange for, I, I asked him to falsely implicate John Gotti in murders in exchange for narcotics. 
And uh, we thought, the other prosecutor and I thought our reward for enduring a seven-month trial, two of us alone at the table with, uh, with seven defendants, would be convictions, but there were acquittals across the board. I, uh, in the inter intervening five years, I grow, I, I continue to grow as a prosecutor. I stay in the trial world that David occupied and uh, an opportunity comes along because of an FBI bug in the social club to bring another case against John Gotti. These were, each case was the most important case of its time in the country. You know, prosecutors like go a lifetime hoping to get somewhere near one of those cases. I got two of them against the same defendant. And the second one, I learned from the first, now I'm the lead prosecutor. I'm not gonna have a gang in the courtroom. I could have indicted the whole family. I start out with just the boss, the underboss, the concierge. And uh, because the lawyers for John Gotti were such, were what they were, they went down to the club and they were part of my evidence. Um, they were inextricably bound up in my obstruction counts, my tax count, the Castellano murder count. This is Bruce Cutler. And Jerry Chargell. Yeah. And John Pollock. We disqualified five lawyers, but Cutler and Chargell got the notoriety. We got the publicity. We disqualified them. Albert Krieger came in to represent John Gotti. And in, in substantial part, because we disqualified the lawyer that the underboss trusted and John Gotti replaced him with John Gotti's own choice. 10 weeks before trial, the underboss flipped. One of the first things he tells me, he says, by the way, you remember that seven month trial five years ago? And I'm like, by the way, it's like <laughs> two years of my life. He said, yeah, I fixed that. I, I bribed the juror in that case. I go, oh my oh, God. okay, thanks. Um, anyway, we go to trial 10 weeks later, the underboss testifies. Um, we have a fully anonymous and sequestered jury, even though I find out right before we impanel that jury that the reason the underboss, Sammy the Bull Gravano, was able to fix the first case was because we had an anonymous jury and a juror lied his way on and reached out for the bad guys. Wow and sold his vote to a, a close friend who was a significant player in the Gambino crime family. So second trial went better. It was shorter instead of peripheral witnesses. You know, in retrospect, the first trial we had, it was, I didn't know any better. It was my first big case. It was bad evidence. I mean, they bribed a juror. They got a defense witness who pled guilty to perjury, who said bad things about us. Um, but it was a bad case. What we Once we got the bug placed in the social club and recorded the boss and the underboss and the counselor actually committing their crimes, um, we had a much better case. It was a, John Gotti was not the typical gangster. He didn't come in in the rumpled suit and Right. Rely on the presumption of innocence in both trials. It was all intimidation all the time. Um, and his defense was really, yeah, I'm the boss of the Gambino crime family. You're really going to try to do something about it. That was that was his defense in Insane. both cases. Insane. And so 
so many questions. Um, let, let me ask you this. Do you think you would have gotten a conviction in the second trial if Sammy the bull had not flipped? Yes. I mean, he flipped almost literally on the eve of trial. We had all three on tapes that to my, this is what I told the jury, David. I said, look, you know, he flipped 10 weeks before the trial. There were going to be three guys at that table, not two. And we were going to convict him on the tapes alone. Right. Now you have him too. So you've got the insider's view. You've got the tapes. Every which way the proof was suffocating because, and they knew that we were going to go to trial with, with just on the tapes. It did change the character of the case entirely. You know, an accomplice witness case is a completely different case than a, a bug, a tape recorded case. You know, uh, Krieger famously said, I, I'd rather have Sammy the bull sitting in the witness chair than sitting in the chair next to me. Um, but I'm not sure he really meant it when he said it. But that, that was a famous line that he, that he gave uh, before the trial, which made me smile because that's classic Albert, sure. uh, you know, wanting to go after, after Sammy the bull. How, how do you, when you're meeting with a, with a, you know, I call them snitches, at the time when you're a prosecutor, you call them cooperating witnesses. How, how when you're sitting with one of those, do you feel comfortable knowing that they're telling the truth? We had another prosecutor in um, who said, you know, I can just tell when somebody's bullshitting me. But that's a tough thing to say, I think. No, it's very hard. Um, but I'll tell you, look, you know, if you want to get granular for a minute, here's, for example, we had this Castellano murder. And before Sammy flipped, the only evidence we had was a witness who said that he saw John Gotti across the street from Spark Steakhouse where the murder occurred, right before the murder, looking down to Second Avenue, right? We had to disclose that to the defense because they were gonna make a motion about the, the ID, right? So they knew we had that evidence. One thing Gravano, he flips, I have him, before he flips, I meet with him secretively. And I say to him, well, tell me about Castellano. Now, here's a guy who knows that our evidence, our sole evidence, really, is John Gotti's across the street. He says to me, no, no, we were sitting in a car on the other side of Third Avenue. Somebody who wants to tailor his evidence to what he knows I've got, what's what is not to say that John got out of the car? So right. little things like that. Here's another one. Look, we indicted them, indicted the, them for three murders. Indicted Sammy for three murders. I knew he had more. And, uh, uh, you know, and we actually strongly suspected him of, you know, four or five others. He flips. I say, well, how many murders you got? And he, in the, when I, in my secretive meeting, you know, he's, I get him out of a jail cell that he's sharing with John Gotti. So I meet with him and he says, I think 18. And I'm like, what do you mean you think? I said, well, I can't exactly write them down on a piece of paper. I'm sharing a cell with John Gotti. So when he writes them down, it's 19. Oh, but here's my point. I said, anybody on there that, that, you know, I said, look, is Jimmy Hoff on that list? Anybody on there special? Cause I'm just trying to do a proffer, right? He says, yeah, my wife's brother. Oh, okay. We didn't suspect him of it. And, we're, and I'm like, uh, well, does your wife know? No. 
Wow. Um, and so here's why I mention it. If, if, if he's going to hold back, in addition to everything I've said, you gather all this other evidence and you constantly have a, like a mosaic against which you're comparing what he tells you. And right. he fared favorably in that regard. But to back to the wife's brother, you know, one of the things I told the agents when he left the room, I said, look, if, if this guy, no, we didn't even know his wife had a brother, let alone Sammy had killed him, let alone that he was going to stay with his wife and didn't want her to know, but we told him she was going to have to know. You know, if he was going to hold back on anything, seems to me he'd hold back first on that. So uh, you, you look for indicia that someone, you know, it's, it's a business. You want that person believed by the jury. First of all, you want to believe he's leveling with you before you sign him on to Team America. And then second of all, you, you want to make sure you can sell his testimony to a jury. So you look for every which way to either corroborate what he's saying or establish that what he's saying is not true, including by telling him, look, man, you don't know who sat in that table in that chair yesterday, and you don't know who's going to be sitting there in two weeks, and they're going to tell us about your crimes. Right. And if we find out about one of your crimes later on and we believe it, and you didn't tell us about that, you're toast. And we actually, you know, Gaspipe Queso was the underboss of the Lucchese family. We did just that. He ended up serving life without parole because we discovered later that he hadn't leveled with us about something. So these stories, I'm sure, are going to be in the book. When is the book coming out? May. Okay. I want an autographed copy. Uh, and you can uh, quote Rule 48 under, underneath uh, <laughs> your autograph. So what, one thing you said earlier, really, um, I, I always wondered about this because you, you mentioned two New York offices, the Southern District of New York and the Eastern District of New York. And there's been a traditional rivalry between the two. Here you guys are in the Eastern District bringing the biggest case um, were, were you getting flack from your brothers and sisters uh, uh, in the Southern District? Yeah, they tried to steal it. We so had to happened? go. Look, yeah. we, look, I'll try to condense this. Ready? John Gotti gets acquitted in 1987, in my case. We strike a deal with the Southern District that, that it can do the Castellano murder. But the next big RICO is ours because we were humiliated. We build a big RICO and then they, they've got nothing over there in the Castellano homicide. They had that one witness, turns out to who is wrong, says John Gotti's across the street. We say to them, you know, it's the Southern District. They're arrogant as all get out. They're gonna bring they tell us when the statute of limitations for murder in aid of racketeering is about to expire, they say, we're going to do this count. We say, you're going to lose that count. By the way, on the bugs, in the Ravenite, on three occasions, John Gotti said, I didn't kill Paul. Right? We're going to, we've indicted them for three homicides based on those tapes where he uh -huh. says he killed guys. We're going to tell a jury what you believe the ones where he said he did it. It's like they had a crappy case. We went to them and said, look, don't bring the case. Put it in ours. Right. It'll, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. They say to us, yeah, you're right. Give us your case. We had 13 predicates, five murders. They try to steal the case. We actually have to go 
down to justice. Bob Mueller was the chief of the criminal division. We have to go down there and litigate who's going to prosecute this case. Them? They got nothing. Or us? We had something big. And to his credit, Bob Mueller, you know, gave the case to the team with the equity in the case. So, yes, it was a big turf battle. It was shameful of them. Amazing. And, and uh, I love to hear those kinds of stories because uh, it makes me smile thinking about prosecutors um, fighting over this kind of thing. I don't know why it makes me happy, but it does. I, I, wrote, I wrote this in the book, you know, for the most part, the competition created by having two districts in one city elevates everybody's performance, just as competition does generally. But you know, we're on a plane in November of 1990 to D.C. If only the public would know that we're going down there to litigate which office is going to prosecute. It's like that was law enforcement at its worst. Right. It really right. was. It's shameful. Right. Well, um, speaking of that, I, I pulled out some of the um, old transcripts and, and uh, articles your your co-counsel Maloney, um, Andrew Maloney, in his in his opening, um, got a little far afield. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read from the New York Times and tell me I want to hear what your impression of was at the time. This is the New York Times article about opening. It said, amid his team's decorum, talking about you, Mr. Maloney gave way only once to an impulse, a gaudy like gesture of his own. It was during his opening statement in which he spoke of quote a mafia boss being brought down by his own words his own right arm, and in the course of it, perhaps bringing down his own family. Suddenly, in what seemed a spontaneous role reversal, Mr. Maloney raised his hand and pointed an imaginary pistol at Gotti. A, a slight smile flickered across the Don's face, but he stared back, unflinching, and the prosecutor squeezed the trigger. Um, when I read that, I was, I was blown away. Um, no pun intended. Bullshit. <laughs> really, I'm not kidding. You know, to to enlarge the spotlight, yeah. one, you know, our whole culture needs to get on a psychiatrist's couch when it comes to the mob, including the journalists in it. Yeah. Who, you know, one of the it's fascinating. One of the reasons Sammy told me he flipped was his generation grew up on the Godfather. And, and life did not imitate art, <laughs> right? He, he said, they're all backstabbers. There's no honor among the, And, you know, we see what we want to see in, in gangsters. Right. You know, whether it's the Don Corleone or the Sopranos or... You know, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Robin Hood, right? That outlaw thing. And the press, and the way they pivoted was remarkable. The press loved John Gotti. He was called the Teflon Don because he had beaten three cases, including our case. And this, Andy Maloney didn't do that. And John Gotti didn't do that. You know, in our second trial, John Gotti was all over me. I'd walk to sidebar. Your mother's a whore. You're a faggot. Wow. Like he was terrible. 
he was act like first trial. He acted like he owned a drawer, unflappable, smiling. Second trial, he acted like a caged animal. But the press said he was, and the judge would chew him out. All this was, I would ask a question of a witness, say, did you speak to John Gotti? And I go like, let's look at him. He would, in front of everybody, do this thing. He was like, like to call me a junkie. He would do this thing with his arm. It was ridiculous. Mm. But the press wanted to see this kind of stoical, you know, dapper Don. It was ridiculous. The minute we convicted him, complete pivot. They never talked to us. Press didn't talk to us during the trial. They, you know, they wanted him to walk again. They wanted to have him outside the courthouse. He got convicted. It was clear he was never going to come out. And all of a sudden, we were the darlings. And right. it was just this obvious, shameless pivot. But that, that, that thing with pulling the trigger, I, I was sitting there. You know, Andy, Andy was the U.S. attorney. He was the U.S. attorney. Right. He, he threw a hand grenade into the jury box in his rebuttal summation. But that thing, I read that thing 100 times. I didn't see that happen, David. So, so the rebuttal closing, just so, so everybody knows what you're talking about, this was a big deal. Um, in his rebuttal, he said, uh, if you accept the proof of what you are dealing with here, the boss of a murderous, treacherous co- crime family and his underboss, then you would be less than human if you didn't feel some personal concern. Um, that was, uh, that was uh, obviously crossed the line. And, and Albert uh, Krieger freaked out from what I read. Um, how did Albert respond? And, and do you think it was appropriate? Yeah, they jumped out of their chairs. Anybody would have. It was, it was over the line, beyond the pale. And I got to tell you my reaction to it. I was sitting there. You know, Andy, Andy was the U.S. attorney. Yes. So he opened and then he sat at the trial and did a rebuttal right. summation. And, <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, my own view was it, of it was A, damn, point one on appeal. B, um, I already have a guy whose MO is not, you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. His MO was intimidation. Right. And I found myself wondering why Andy would be telling the jurors they should be afraid of the guy. <laughs> I thought that was my, the one path to acquittal because it was the path in the first case. He made no bones about being who he was. It was all I intimidation see. all the time. I see. So I thought, you know, and I thought, you know, I'm not too happy about this. Not for the same reason Albert Krieger was not too happy about it. But then lastly, Look, I was chief of appeals for a long time. The Gottis occupied our courthouse for a long time. There was a period of about five years where a Gotti was on trial almost literally every single day in the courthouse. And I knew full well that 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 was the wrong thing to do, that we got blasted by the court. But I knew, just as you know, David, that it's going to be very hard to get a court of appeals to reverse a conviction of John Gotti based on that remark. So, so I could talk trial stories about the Gotti case for, I think for, for the next five days, but um, I know we're running out of time and my students want to 
um, ask a couple questions. If, if you have a few more minutes, I'll. Yeah. I'll no, I'll of course, I'm here as long as you need me. Okay, so I'm going to turn the camera around so you can finally see them. Um, we got. Oh, good. Yeah. They're really, they're really there. I was a little afraid. I was just talking <laughs> to Marcus. Yeah, yeah. I, I, this is a, this is a whole setup that I get people to come in and talk to me about their trials. Um, so, so if if you all have uh, questions, we'll take a couple questions with Judge Gleason um, before our time runs out. So, if any, yeah, come on up, come on up. Um, Please, and thank you for coming today. Sure. Um, one of the things I was wondering when reading your article was when you said that um, every prosecutor that you had approached uh, in these excessive sentences cases, all but one um, refused to cooperate. And I was wondering, having worked as a prosecutor, whether you think it's an issue of culture in these in these prosecution prosecutors' offices or. Um, if this new wave of sort of progressive prosecutors could fix that, I was sort of wondering what you think and what can be done to change that mentality of prioritizing convictions over actual justice. It's a good question. Really a great question. And it's, it's not a new phenomenon. You've seen this with uh, uh, conviction integrity units. You've seen it with, you see it in, Challenge, habeas challenges based on actual innocence, the inclination of prosecutors to cling to convictions and to sentences as though they were the only convictions or sentences they ever got in their whole careers can't be overstated. It's just, it's in the DNA and the DNA is partly formed by these very, very onerous principles of finality that are built into our legal framework, right? The, that EDPA law in 1996 raised them to another level. You know, so part of it is just, it's part of the prosecution uh, fabric. We don't let go. Even, even like when the, it's right under their noses that, that they need to show a little compassion and realism and recognize the facts, you know, really require mercy. They, they don't let go. And it's, I tell you, it's really, really frustrating. Um, but they just don't exercise. And, and a version of that happens once they indict. As a defense lawyer, you got to get your butt in there before they indict because the inertial effect of an indictment no matter what you come up with post-indictment is overwhelming. It's just a, it's a, a reality in the culture that's not new and needs to be addressed. I'm not sure how to address it, except progressive prosecutors who don't worry as much about getting reelected as they should, as they do rather. And, uh, I, I hate to give Rakoff so much play, but you know, one of his recommendations is that um, before you become a prosecutor, you should have to represent somebody and be a criminal defense lawyer, see what it's like. Yeah. That will never happen, of course, but I do think it, it opens people's eyes to actually represent a real person who has to stare down an indictment against the United States of America. Absolutely. Agreed. Okay, we have another question for you. Come Good. on. Hi. So this actually kind of goes um, to Judge Rakoff's point a little bit as well. Um, 
you mentioned that discretion will is like water. It'll find a place to settle, right? So after having been on every side um, of the criminal justice system, what, I guess, what suggestions do you have for making sure or for going towards a place where that discretion is more equitably divided? Um, because obviously before the sentencing guidelines, it was all on judges and now it's all on prosecutors. So I just want to know what your thoughts were on changing that for... How do we fix it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I've got, you know, I've got views on that and they're not that, they're really not that complicated, not that sophisticated. We had a system where we decided we weren't going to trust the judges anymore. Right? And and uh, we wanted transparency and and certainty and uniformity, all good goals. Um, and I've already described for you the, what, the system we used to have. We decided not to trust the judges. We, we kind of went overboard, right? We, we, uh, we stopped trusting them. You look at that, that vertical graph about prison population. Um, in, in gross, there's a lot of particulars I could provide to you, but in gross, one answer I think that is kind of, you know, an inescapable inference is, well, maybe we should start trusting judges again a little bit. I mean, it yeah. hasn't worked out so well. And I don't, and, and, the, and then you get from the naysayers, well, we don't want to go back to those bad old days. And I, you don't, I'm not talking about going back to the bad old days. Make judges explain their decisions. Give them a little more discretion. Have, we don't have robust appellate review. We have supine appellate review of sentences. I'm all for, when I was on the bench, I was all for having three court of appeals judges look at my sentences for reasonableness. So it's really just a matter of calibrating it, right? We had too much trust in judges. We changed it. Now we got too little trust in judges. Prosecutors have too much control. Why don't we let the pendulum swing back, take some of that discretion away from DOJ, get yeah. rid of those mandatory minimums that dictate sentences, trust the judges, make them explain, review them. You know, there's a middle ground. And, uh, and, and I think and you we know, need to go there. You know, Judge, uh, one of the things that, that always amazed me is that on the Sentencing Commission, we have... We have judges and there's a prosecutor seat. There's no, uh, there's no seat for defense lawyers at the table. It's anything really, really amazing. Um, when I was chair of Defender Services, David, I, we got the, the, uh, the, um, the committee of the Judicial Conference. We got the Judicial Conference to ask Congress to pass legislation requiring an ex officio defender not just for appearances sake, although appearances matter a lot, but the quality of the deliberations and the decision-making obviously would benefit from a defender perspective. It's an abomination that there's an ex officio designee from the AG, but not from the defender program. I like when you get fired up. It makes me, I like it. I, li I like the abomination uh, quote. All right, we got, I think, time for two more questions. Here's one, and then we'll go one more. Go ahead. Hi, yes, I was just curious about what sparked your decision to originally become a prosecutor and then the moments that you realized you wanted, wanted to transition into being a judge and then now a defense attorney. I like it. What, what, what made you uh, go one path and another than another? I was a law clerk and 
I saw the case, I, I liked everything about it, but the criminal cases were so human. So they engaged me to a degree that was orders of magnitude greater than the civil cases, even though I love the civil cases. So I decided I'm going into criminal law. You know, I, I grew up on The Godfather too. I actually wanted to be like Tom Hagen, you know, the <laughs> consigliere. But I looked around and I saw that the, in the criminal cases, the prosecutors were the young ones and the defender, defenders, for the most part, were old people. And I thought, okay, I don't want to wait till I'm old to do this. So I'll be a prosecutor. So I decide I'm going to be an, a, an AUSA. I go to a big, the best firm I can get an offer from just for the resume value. And I land that job. And then part of the answer is when I'm a, when I was a law clerk, I looked around at what the judge was doing. I said, I want to do that too. I knew I couldn't be a judge right away. But um, so I became an AUSA. I really liked it. I'm proud of the work I did as an AUSA. I, I evolved. Many people accuse me of undergoing a metamorphosis. I deny that. But I did evolve. When I went on the bench, I got involved with Defender Services, hung around with people like Marcus, saw the world from a different perspective. Um, but I went, you know, I got on the bench. I, I said, when judges would ask me, you know, I was in courtrooms all the time. Judges would say, well, you know, you got a plan? I go, oh, I kind of like to be a judge. I tried John Gotti in front of two separate judges. I spent a year of my life in courtrooms, in hearings or trial with John Gotti. Those two judges, it turned out, both knew the chair and the most significant a member of Senator Moynihan, Pat Moynihan's Judicial Selection Committee, and they made me a judge. You know, it's different ways to become a judge. But I told people I would like to do that, and the right people learned it and made me a judge. And then, you know, I left because, I mean, I'm doing in reverse order what pretty much every other judge in a high cost of living place does. You know, most of them go on their bench, on the bench in their early 50s after feathering their nest. I got nominated at age 40 as a public servant. So I didn't have a chance to feather my nest. And then I got, you know, kids going to college. So I left the bench. I, I, I don't want to hear that it was because of the money. I want to hear that this was a true calling uh, to, to, to start the Holloway Project and nah. be a criminal defense lawyer. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a cash flow thing. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're breaking my heart. You're breaking my heart. Um, yeah, I, no. I, all right. He broke me down. It's hero worship. I wanted to be David Marcus. <laughs> Listen, I, I was a defender, which was, uh, which, which was and, I, and I left, uh, and I left that as well. So, all right, we got time for one more question. For okay. Me. Hey, Judge. Um, this isn't quite as thoughtful questions the other ones, I guess. But is there anything about the Jordan Belfort case that you call today? It still sticks out to you. Great. Wolf. So, I got, I'm sorry, Lance. The last part I was laughing. Is there any about anything about? I was just saying, is there anything you can recall like from that case that still sticks out to you? Who played you in the movie? I don't know. You know, I never saw the movie. My girls saw the movie. You never um, saw the movie? This is the this is the, uh, Wolf of Wall Street case, right? You know, the, the Wolf of Wall Street became a witness. He testified way downhill against his accomplice, against his accountant, excuse me. Yeah. Who, you know, who was on tape. Anyway, he testified against his accountant. Here's the, I'll give you one vignette, right? 
And this shows how, how prosecutors get too close to their accomplices. He, he flips, he pleads guilty, he's on home detention. He's out for a pending sentence. I, f I find out like randomly in some kind of report I got from pretrial services, I find out that Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, was in Atlantic City like a month earlier. And then I'm like, excuse me, he's on home detention. So I bring everybody in and I find out that he chartered a helicopter to take them to Atlantic City where he gambled for the weekend and then he came back home. <laughs> and everybody knew about it. And talk about, you know, independent interest of the Article Three judge. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. He's on home detention and he charters a, I, I immediately put him in, right? I said, you're going in. You gotta understand that like, stay in your home what part of stay in your home do you think can be construed to allow you to go to Atlantic City and gamble for a weekend? And well, then I, you know, I let him ferment in the prison for a little while. And then I let him out again. But you're soft, you, let, you let him out. But, you know, you know who his roommate was in, in prison, right? Oh, this is a great story. So his roommate was Tommy Chong of Cheech and Chong, uh, <laughs> who, who um, actually encouraged him to write a book which got made into the movie. So, yeah. so, um, so good question about, about Belfort. Um, yeah. I, th this was great. I, I loved it. Thank you so much for speaking with me in the class. I, I hope uh, everybody got as much out of it as I did. I, I really learned a lot tonight and, and appreciate you doing this judge. So thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Nice to see you all. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that was a really cool episode with Judge John Gleason. I mean, it's not every day that you get to speak to somebody that's been both a prosecutor, a federal judge, and a criminal defense lawyer. It's really neat to hear all of those different perspectives. And I have to say, it's wonderful to have Judge Gleason now working on the defense side and seeking justice in these cases where so many injustices occurred where he couldn't stop them. He couldn't stop them as a federal judge because of the crazy laws that we have. But as a criminal defense lawyer, he's making a lot of headway and helping to solve these injustices. Next week, we turn to Ed Showhat to finish off season four. It's such a fun uh, interview with my good friend Ed about a monster drug case that happened back in the 80s. In addition to thanking Judge Gleason, I want to thank my UM Law class for participating and allowing me to play this episode. Um, and I will be announcing the CLE code in next week's episode for you Florida lawyers who are listening. In any event, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Please spread the word. This is David Oscar Marcus for For the Defense. Thank you.